So I just, I just listened to, um, most of a lecture by Ayn Rand, I get given in 1974 entitled egalitarianism and inflation. Um, I, I think I, I might've watched it all, listened to it all. Maybe not. It was on Spotify and I felt like I couldn't really, uh, jump forward for some reason. I think you have to be logged in, but anyways, um, what I found curious about this topic, uh, and interesting was the way that she described, um, money as a tool. And she did say money had to be a material commodity. Um, and she also said something about tangibility as well. And I just want to contrast that with, you know, what the Bitcoiners think of as commodity money, this non-material, intangible, you know, token called Bitcoin. Now, some might argue, well, you know, uh, digital technology wasn't that big in 1974. I mean, really? I mean, we had, I think we had like digital, we had the internet, (laughs) we had computers. I mean, I guess it wasn't, it wasn't as big of a deal as it was in 1974. I don't know. But we had calculators, right? I, I'm pretty sure Ayn Rand could have, um, could have uh, conceptualized some kind of digital token becoming, you know, a money. But she specifically said, into, she specifically said that money had to be a commodity, a material commodity, and the word the word tangible, which I thought was very interesting. Now, you know. Not that I've read every source or heard every source of the Bitcoiners' arguments on why Bitcoin, you know, could be money or could be this intangible, you know, good. They always talk about savings, you know, Safedine always talks about like uh, lowering your your time preference, which basically, I always get confused with these words. I wish they would just say what they mean instead of this catchy phrase like lowering your time preference. How about just say... Uh, saving, right? Not consuming all of your current production, uh, basically savings and, and, you know, but they like to use these time preference words, which, you know, you have to like think about in your brain every time they say that. Well, um, I think that, I think that the Bitcoiners would be better off explaining something in, in a way that more people could understand. So Ayn Rand, what did she do in this lecture? She explained money and its function in a way that's natural to people, that people could understand. She explained it as, you know, a farmer, right, has to save some of his crop in the form of seeds. He can't, you know, consume it all to survive, And then, you know, maybe think about back in the day, (laughs) but then, um, so he's doing that for his, to survive so he can survive the next year. Now, um, if, if he becomes really productive, he's got a lot of seeds to save. There's a limit really on how much he can just store away because perhaps you could argue that if he's really, really productive, um, some of this seed crop that he stores for the future is going to go bad, right? It's going to perish. So he needs, in order to uh, reap the rewards of, of his extra productivity to sustain his life, or he's saving, he's looking out for the future, well, he can now, uh, in theory, trade. He can directly barter with someone else who has produced something that he wants, right? So he, maybe they you know, some, uh, I don't know, um, metal, metal, uh, sword producer <laughs> thinking that back in the day, really back in the day, but somebody who makes swords, right? So he's, he's, he's productive and he's, he's making swords, although that's not going to directly sustain your life. Um, let's think about like a, 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 a sheep producer, maybe let's just sheep. So the sheep herder, uh, produces extra sheep that he doesn't need exactly to live, you know, 
and that in the future, you know, uh, well, the sheep's going to die. So in an age, so he wants to just trade some of his sheep. Well, um, uh, what we need is some kind of, you know, commodity that everybody can accept, um, that makes trading easier. Um, and it has to be a commodity. It has to be something that's actually considered valuable and wealthy and wealth, you know, intrinsically on its own, like some, some kind of material thing. Um, so, so, you know, we settled on gold. And so when you're, you're trading your, um, extra seed crop that you don't need, right. For gold, you're in a sense being able to store your extra productive activity in a, in a better way. That's not going to maybe deteriorate. Right. And that, uh, allows you to delay consumption right into the future or, or, um, or investment into the future, your own investment, I should say. Um, and the main purpose of, of money, she said was savings. Now she also said medium of exchange, right? But savings allows you to defer your consumption to delay your consumption into the future. But it also at the same time allows you to give your current produce. So say your extra seeds that you have lying around to someone else, when you exchange that for the, for the gold commodity, which is a better savings tool, um, it allows you to to give away your extra production in that moment, right? So when you buy gold, you're giving away your extra um, seed production, let's just say. And, uh, and so this is going to sustain someone else's life in the moment, right? Maybe they're, maybe they are um, basically relying on this in order to uh, you know, become more productive themselves, right? Like in theory, you would maybe lend someone your extra grain. Um, well, this is lending. Sorry. I'm, I'm saying, so when you are, when you are buying gold with your extra seed commodity, seed grain that you don't need in the moment, you're trading it for a commodity that can act as money in a, in a way that, um, you can store your savings, your surplus in a better format, let's just say. Well, the, the person that you're buying the gold from, uh, let's say that they are a gold miner and this is what they produce. So, so they're trading their gold commodity for seed, right? Cause they can't eat the gold. They need, they need some seed. So they're, they're selling this thing called gold for seeds. Or you could just say someone else who bought the gold from a miner uh, is selling the gold that they have for, for seeds. Maybe they this is part of their savings, their surplus. And now they, they want to spend some of it, so they get some seeds. And they, they're able to enjoy uh, some seeds in the, in the moment from this guy's extra production. But I think the idea is that you're, 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 you're trading value for value. Like gold can be consumed. It can be... It can be used um, in things, uh, and um, you know, just a sidebar. Keith 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 Weiner in his one debate on Bitcoin versus gold said that you know you don't really consume gold, and I mean, I guess I guess it's the language here that we have to be very specific on what we mean. And when I say consume gold, I mean like, well, not that we use it up, but that it's useful in different, uh, different, in different making of different products. But he's right in that, you know, all of the gold is still around. Um, it's just in different things or, or whatever. It doesn't get like used up like a sheep, like a commodity, like an animal will die. Right. Um, and you can say that gets used up. But uh, aside from aside from that, um, I think what the I think that the 
what the Bitcoiners sort of miss is sort of just explaining savings and production in a way that, that makes sense and normal people could understand it. And, you know, I think that they do that because I think that the, pe- the, the people know that it doesn't make sense. Like if you think about the savings and production saga or cycle in a way that like Ayn Rand, right? Or if you, if you listen to Peter Schiff, he has a whole like kids book sort of uh, illustrated book on this subject as well. It's that um, the reason why savings is so important or just savings is just your extra, extra productive capacity that you've produced that's valuable to other people that, um, that other people might want and that you can save either into the future for your own consumption, right? Or for someone else's consumption, right? You can, you can basically invest uh, in someone else to be productive. So your savings buy you time, either your own, it can sustain your own life, right? Or it can sustain someone else's life. And you would do this when you're uh, basically when you are um, wanting to invest in production and someone else's productive capability. And maybe you, you know, are going to reap some reward as well from that. That's what investing sort of in stock markets about, or it's supposed to be about. Uh, but if you think about, um, so if you think about gold back to gold, um, you have extra capacity production. You want to save that in something that's a little bit better uh, than just seeds because that could go bad or sheep. So you, you get something better like gold and, and gold can store pretty well. It's highly liquid, right? People demand it in the future. Uh, so, so, um, so what, what happens then is you're basically by buying gold and selling your extra production, your extra crop base, you're sustaining someone's life because someone is then buying this. Someone is buying this um, in that moment, and you're 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 being product you're being extra productive. And you're you're ba- you're basically allowing them to uh, sustain their life, right? With with whatever production you have extra. Now, um, when you buy gold, you're trading value for value. You're trading something real, something tangible, something useful a commodity, a commodity metal that's highly useful for something like uh, a food that, or whatever production that you have, extra seeds. Um, that's value for value. Now, in the future, when you want to spend some of your gold, then you, um, in theory, you have to find a buyer. You have to find someone else who's willing to take it. Um, and this is, so the Bitcoiners try to substitute Bitcoin in this whole cycle. And um, if you think about who's selling the Bitcoin, well, they're getting dollars from somebody. And let's say the dollars really are substituting for some productive uh, thing that the the buyer, sorry, the, uh, yeah, the buyer has made some kind of productive, whatever, has a surplus, and now they want to store the surplus in Bitcoin. Okay, so they hand over the dollars represent whatever the surplus is to a seller of Bitcoin. This could be the, either be the miner. Right, let's start with the miner because they're the first people that sell Bitcoin. Now, the miner of Bitcoin, um, they're getting the dollars in, in exchange for this Bitcoin. Is this Bitcoin actually... Uh, so so the, the miner's getting the dollars, so they can either consume in the present with these dollars, or they can... Um, invest themselves. Um, and I would argue they're investing themselves sort of, um, or they are consuming because they're, cons- they're buying electricity. They're buying, uh, you know, computer equipment, right? They're buying, um, electricity, all that stuff to go mine the Bitcoin. Um, right. But there are, but it, I guess it's also an investment because they're investing in the process called Bitcoin mining, I guess you could say. So, um, but are these Bitcoin miners that you're handing over your surplus to your excess dollars, 
representing your surplus in theory. Are they actually being productive? Are they actually being productive with these dollars? Meaning like, are they actually being productive in the sense of contributing to society, like contributing to the wealth of society, making things that we actually need? No. What are they doing? They're consuming. They're consuming electricity. They're consuming uh, hardware, laptops, right? Building space. They're consuming all this stuff. And they're, what are they doing with it? They're making Bitcoin, right? That doesn't really help the society. It, it, it's not like it, they're making food, right? So they're not really helping society. So when you, when you hand over your excess surplus in the form of dollars that represent your excess you know, savings, you're giving it to a Bitcoin miner. This Bitcoin miner uh, is not actually doing anything productive, right? They're not, they're not actually producing things that we need as a society that people need to sustain their lives in the present. And they're also not helping that to do that in the future because they, to the extent that they're just investing in Bitcoin mining, which is propagating the whole system, right? They're just investing in Bitcoin mining. Uh, they, um, they're still not doing anything productive for the future. So in a way they, um, they aren't being, this is not a productive industry. I mean, nothing like when you buy a Bitcoin from someone, um, you're handing over quote unquote, your savings, but, but this, this savings, right. Is not going into not going to anybody productive it's going to bitcoin miners who are essentially just consuming in the present electricity in order to you know quote unquote do their business which is bitcoin mining but the business of bitcoin mining that, that you're sort of investing in by handing over your dollars to buy bitcoin is not a productive business it doesn't actually help create wealth in society because what what excess product are the bitcoin miners making i guess you could say bitcoin because they're making something called bitcoin and they need a certain amount they need to sell a certain amount of bitcoin to sustain them to buy the things that they need to buy right but anything above that right i guess you could call that their profit is there excess capacity or is there extra production? I guess you could say, since it's worth, you know, so much in price, I'm just going by the price. Um, so that is, um, that's their extra capacity, I guess, how much profit they really make, how much extra Bitcoin that they make that's just in profit. Uh, but, um, that extra Bitcoin cannot be used for anything really productive. Like it can't even be used to sustain someone's life uh, and it can't be used in anything like to make anything, right? So it's, it's not a productive thing in and of itself. It's just some uh, intangible token. Um, now, if you're buying it from not a miner, but you know somebody else, I suppose, you're you're still handing them over your savings, your extra savings in the form of dollars, and they could either consume in the present moment, or I guess they could, you know, take the money and invest somewhere else. Um, I think a lot of people who are selling Bitcoin are probably consuming a lot because they probably made a lot of money in Bitcoin. Um, so I doubt they're really going to be now that there might be some savvy Bitcoiners out there who might take the money that they've made and then invest this in other areas that are actually productive for society. But a lot of this is going to just be consumed. Like we don't know. I mean, when you buy a Bitcoin and you hand someone over dollars, you don't ask them, you don't get to ask them, Hey, what are you going to use this for? So you think you're saving because you're buying something called Bitcoin, right? But this depends, you know, your ability to save a Bitcoin very much depends on the future value of this Bitcoin. If anyone's going to want it, if, is, is anyone going to actually trade with you and give you um, things that you want to buy for this Bitcoin?
will it be demanded in the future? I think Bitcoiners just take this uh, for granted. Um, but, you know, but it shouldn't be taken for granted because Bitcoin is just, it's not a real thing. And if it's not a real thing, if it's not used in anything really, nobody really demands it, you know, other than this speculative notion that they could, you know, get rich and make money off of it. That's a problem for your savings. <laughs> you know, it's also a problem that, um, you know, the Bitcoin itself, they want Bitcoin to be thought of as money. But when you hand over dollars, because dollars is what is Bitcoin's priced in. If you hand over dollars for Bitcoin, um, any kind of, you know, quote unquote savings, right, or production is being funded by dollars to the extent that the Bitcoin miners are buying electricity in dollars. They're buying their laptops in dollars, right? They're paying their labor in dollars. They're not paying it in Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin's not funding anything. You're just pretending like you're buying Bitcoin and you're saving and you're deferring your uh, consumption or investment because savings technically isn't an isn't investment. Savings is required for capital investment. But why? Only because you're lending. You're letting someone else consume in the moment, right? Now, you can either save and hoard or you could save in theory and um or you could just save in theory and lend like saving is lending but there's risk there you may not get it back so um so what's cool is that you know something like gold being money and substituting it for barter right for all these different products that people are making well all the products that at least are perishable at least get you know, allocated to people where they need them. Um, and then maybe people are just saving gold, uh, which can survive, you know, indefinitely, really. So um, it's just kind of cool how that, how that works out. Um, I think I've never heard a Bitcoiner explain this idea of where savings comes from, how production is actually funded. Like they just skip to, I don't know, savings are good and, you know, you should have lower time preference or something. Uh, and savings funds, I guess, I guess they probably admit savings funds capital investment because you need savings in order to sustain your life all the, all the time. You need, you need something to sustain your life. So people fund other people when they're creating a business that intends to be, you know, profitable and, and productive, they will fund these people in the moment so that they can survive to produce whatever they're going to produce. Um, and I don't think that's happening just directly with Bitcoin. It's happening with dollars right? Um, is anyone actually being productive by lending their Bitcoin to anybody? They always talk about saving their Bitcoin, saving in Bitcoin, but they never talk about lending in Bitcoin. And they, they, they actually highly reject this idea that, that like they don't want people to lend their Bitcoin. Well, I guess that's okay for them because the idea that anyone's lending their Bitcoin productively, I mean, I don't think that's happening. They're just doing it for gambling. But really what's going on is people are actually handing over dollars for Bitcoin, right? And then people are able to do whatever they want to with these dollars in the moment. So all they're telling you to save in Bitcoin, the seller is able to get dollars in the moment to do whatever with, to consume, to maybe make a different investment with, right? Um, and you're saying you're saving in Bitcoin, you're saving your X. So you might, you might think, and this might be true, you've earned a lot of money for whatever service you provide. You have an extra, you know, you, you, you've produced so much of the service, you have extra, extra money basically lying around. So you think that you're saving this extra productive service that you, you were so productive, you know, you have all this extra profit. You think you're going to buy Bitcoin and save this supposed extra uh, service that you did, right? your profit, you're going to save this in, in Bitcoin so that the future, right? So that in the future you can, um, 
hopefully spend this extra production that you you did right um, in the past. So the idea is that someone's going to want to give get your Bitcoin right or to give you money or something or trade with you uh, the things that you want for this Bitcoin in the future. But they never explain like the Bitcoiners never explain why anybody would want the Bitcoin. Right. Why? Why would they even have the same price? Why would they want the Bitcoin um, in the future? There's no natural demand for this Bitcoin. There's no it doesn't satisfy any need and it doesn't go into any like productive factory to make anything anybody wants. Um, so it's just this idea that you're speculating that that someone's going to want it. Someone's going to demand it and it, that even it's going to be at least the price that you paid for it when you when you bought it or higher, like you're just, you're just hoping and praying. This is a hope and pray method for saving. Why would anybody, you know, save in this, this, this thing that's just, uh, so unknown or risky or just, there's no certainty here, you know, saving something when you, when you, when you trade your productive, your extra productive, capacity, like your the service that you provided or whatever, you work for that. And you, um, when you, when you save that for the future, you, you want that to be there. Like you, do you really want to risk, uh, that that could just be wiped out by some bad investment or some bad trade or buying something that, um, think about this. What if you were to, what if you were like a heart surgeon and you perform so many heart surgeries in one month? right? That, that, um, you sold, you know, you were able to sell this for all the stuff that you need and you just had so much of it extra. So you wanted to store it in something that a good that represented something that's that future people would want that way that you could, um, enjoy the fruits of your extra labor that you did. Uh, let's just say, so let's say that you make a bad call though, and you haven't explored what commodity or what item you should, you know, in theory, trade for these extra heart surgeries that you've performed. Let's just say that we're in like a barter economy again, right? And you decide, well, I'm going to, I'm going to save my extra profit that I made this month in heart surgeries. You know, I'm going to save that in sheep or, or, you know, something or something that like would deteriorate. Um, or, I don't know. Think of something that like is so or Pokemon cards. I mean, think of something that's so um, just just out of this world, not like not a normal thing that people would buy. Right. Not a normal staple that people need. Right. Sort of an extra sort of this thing that is most people don't even know what this thing is. Right. Most people don't know what Pokemon cards are. Most people have heard of Pokemon, but they don't know what these cards are. Most people have heard of Bitcoin, but they have no idea what it is. Right. And so you're storing your, your future um, consumption ability on some random token thing that nobody understands and nobody really needs. Like that's a big gamble. And for people that are so big on savings, right. And so big on, I don't know if they're big on production. I, I tend to think they shy away from understanding production or talking about the productive capability of uh, the economy and the workforce and encouraging businessmen. They talk about bad regulation, and big government, but they don't really talk about how, produ- how people can become more productive, what drives business productivity in the sense that they need savings, you know, and one of my biggest problems with the Bitcoiners is that they they think that Bitcoin represents a commodity. And it just doesn't, right? It just doesn't. And I think that this is part of the con. This con that, um, you know, and Ayn Rand mentioned this in her video. She said that, you know, to the extent that money grows without actual resources in the economy, to the extent that money can grow and supply, right, without actual production, backing that up, you know, meaning that the gold supply does increase a little bit because more is found, right? It's a predictable rate. Um, and there's supply and demand. The price, you know, might encourage more people to mine or maybe maybe they encourages them not to mine. 
uh, but more gold is found. But the gold represents something tangible and real that is actually valuable to people that use it to make stuff, right? To make things, to use it in computers, right? Use it in dentistry, just make jewelry out of it. I mean, whatever. Um, but when you have Bitcoin and you create more Bitcoin, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that anything was created of value. It doesn't mean that the, the, the production of anything was expanded. In fact, it actually represents the opposite because we, you had to consume electricity or, or some resource to make this thing. But this thing is basically worthless in the real world. Not looking at price, right? I'm distancing the Bitcoin itself from the price. What if Bitcoin didn't have a price? What could you do with the Bitcoin? Would anybody want it? What if it was, what if it, Bitcoin was priced at zero or very near that? Would anybody want Bitcoin? Well, you can't do anything with it. Now, what's the difference between Bitcoin being priced at zero, theoretically, and gold being priced at zero? Would anybody want gold priced at zero? The answer would be yes. And why is that? Because gold's actually useful as a commodity. Right. Gold is useful as a commodity. So if the price of gold was zero dollars, people would want gold. If the price of Bitcoin was zero dollars, no one would want Bitcoin. It wouldn't be worth anything to anybody. Right. The, the Bitcoin is only worth something because it has a price and it's trading. That is pretty crazy to me. I mean, I just thought of that that way to think about this, to compare gold and Bitcoin. I don't think I've ever heard anybody actually say that. What if. Bitcoin was zero. I mean, people, people all the time predict Bitcoin go to zero, but what, you know, this, this idea of what if Bitcoin was zero versus what if, Bit, what if gold was zero, which one would be in demand? Clearly the real commodity, clearly gold, the tangible thing that actually is used, that actually provides value, that actually has properties that are valuable. Bitcoin, on the other hand, if it price was zero or very close to that, if it, and you know, it does, the price doesn't have to go to zero. It can just be, you know, the government can basically render exchanges uh, enable to do their job, right? Or, or just make it very difficult to run an exchange, make it very difficult for people to trade this thing, make it very difficult to figure out what Bitcoin's true price is. Uh, and if that's the case, I mean, it doesn't mean it's going to zero, but, 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 but it will uh, hinder its price. So I, I think this idea of Bitcoiners not wanting to explain like real production, real savings in real goods and what this means, like in real goods, like sheep, uh, food, you know, uh, housing, whatever, shelter, uh, medicine, like all of these real goods that we all need as people, clothing, uh, AC, <laughs> uh, refrigeration, you know, just the modern, you know, microwave, like whatever, whatever you think you need in life, right? Cars, planes, uh, fuel, plastics, like just whatever you think you need in life. Um, we should be talking about that is the real wealth in this country, right? And our, our, our ability to produce uh, is, is, is something that's very important. And um, savings allows us to become more productive over time. Uh, to have more time to be able to think about our future and to try to invest where we can to make our lives better. Um, and the Bitcoiners never want to talk about the real economy and real goods and services, right? Well, I mean, they might, might want to talk about the service economy, right? Because they are the service economy. They fit into that, that category. Uh, the Bitcoiners don't want to talk about real life. Like some of them talk about, you know, energy, you know, and, and how we need energy, they, they tend to get on these, these topics because uh, they relate to Bitcoin. But, um, you know, and some of them might get it, but I, I feel like a lot of them don't have a grasp on the real world. Like they're not real world thinkers. Um, and I also think, you know, I stumbled across this article yesterday, just as a segue, still on Rand a little bit, <laughs> but she, you know, she, she blasted libertarians. And you know, libertarians were popularized, apparently, the term, but it doesn't mean anything. There could be left-leaning ones. There could be right-leaning ones. There could be ones that just want to do whatever they want to. There could be anarcho-capitalist people who want basically want anarchy. 
And um, it didn't really dawn on me either. Like, why is that? And, you know, she basically says, well, they're not principled. They don't start off with a philosophy. They basically have a political goal and they have this, they basically plagiarized Ayn Rand's work to say this axiom of, you know, the non-aggression principle is just their principle that they start with. And yeah, that's true. Because I remember listening to a few people that that was their thing. It was the non-aggression principle. But that, um, you know, and that Stefan Molyneux guy, he, he almost, I, I remember him almost trying to like prove it with his own philosophy type axioms. Um, but he didn't go into the metaphysics. He just tried to explain it as like some A, A equals B and B, therefore B is whatever, blah, blah, blah. Like this, this, this logic that's just in your head. He didn't try to explain it through this metaphysical philosophical philosophy approach, really. I don't think he did. Um, he just wanted to start with this random topic, like, okay, why this random topic? So that's, I think, the problem with, Ayn, with, with you know, libertarians from Ayn Rand's point of view. Uh, you know, and I, I tend to call myself a libertarian type person, but maybe I shouldn't do that, right? Because, uh, you know, in, in libertarians have gotten a bad rap. And part of it, I think, is because they don't, no one knows what the hell these people believe in. Uh, and they don't really, they're not really they don't really have a philosophy. And so they can have all these contradictions, which is true. Uh, you know, cause they don't really believe in borders, right. Um, that kind of thing. <laughs> they like immigration apparently, but they also don't believe in the welfare state. So that's sort of a contradiction for them now. Yeah. So I kind of, I kind of think on, on Rand was right about, uh, you know, libertarians, um, I think libertarians have a heart, heart, most of them have their heart in the right place. They just haven't dug into the philosophy of Ayn Rand to see, okay, this is a better system. This is a better, this is actually a philosophy that leads to these certain, you know, political ideas. And that's actually where you should start is the philosophy. Um, Ayn Rand or Leonard Peikoff, I can't remember which one, also called um, libertarian subjectivists and whim whim worshipers or, or, uh, yeah, uh, you know, going with their whims. And that to me screams like Bitcoiners, like Bitcoiners are subjectivists. They believe in subjective theory of value. Um, I don't, and they, they tend to not believe in objective rules or laws because they, they want to get rid of the state, right? Ayn Rand believes in monopoly use of force of the state of a legitimate government. I think that the problem with a lot of Bitcoiners in particular is that they see the state as corrupt so then they think, okay, we just have to get rid of the state, right? Um, yeah, and I and Ayn Rand obviously, she well, she doesn't she doesn't agree with this because she's she believes that the use of force should be be a central government. So a central government should have the monopoly use of force to enforce dispute. So so um, to settle disputes to retaliate against someone who's used force against someone else. Otherwise, we have private police and private gangs uh, who are just threatening one another. And um, there, there's no one to, to tell anybody that they can't use this, this uh, use of force in a, in a type of anarchy situation. So Ayn Rand rejects anarchy. But it seems like a lot of the Bitcoiners embrace it. And I think what's... Um, What's confusing is that they they like this idea that code is law. So it's almost like they don't think that there shouldn't be any laws, but they think they can codify laws in in code or smart contract type things where we don't have to rely on a state, we don't have to rely on a government, but we still have disputes. Like code, we see all the time there's hacks, there's people that get duped into some smart contracts. Um, and code is not like a smart contract cryptocurrency code is not the same thing as a contract that you might enter into where it's written in English. And these contracts are, are also interpreted, right, by the two parties. And then if there's a dispute, this has to go to a court system. I think a lot of the Bitcoiners and a lot of the crypto people in general despise the courts. And I think it's this idea that the courts won't be fair 
that maybe they're too time consuming. Maybe, uh, you know, a lot of it I think is efficiency. They think that they could speed up disputes without having to go through the court system because the courts can be expensive, right? They can be um, ridiculously expensive, especially if you don't have the funds, right? They can take, I guess, years to settle some kind of dispute you have with somebody, um, which might render the, it just not worth it. Um, but I don't see how smart contract code could replace the courts. And smart contracts can't enforce every kind of possible dispute you might have with someone um, in, the, in this country, right? You can't put everything in a smart contract. Not everybody can read code, right? And there's bugs in the code. I mean, who are you going to blame for that? We haven't even seen uh, a lot of these smart contract type um, cases, you know, go before a court of law yet. We probably will in the future because, uh, well, there's going to be lots of disputes and there's going to be lots of people who want to try to get back money that maybe they, they feel like they were, you know, defrauded or, or stolen from or whatever. And I think the court's just going to have to throw out these smart contracts and say, these don't represent a contract to me. Uh, you never really entered into one and they're going to have to just try to figure out what happened, you know, another way, like just by asking them, well, what did you, what did you think you were entering into? What kind of like communication was, was, was given? Oh, maybe, maybe they didn't enter into any verbal uh, contract. Maybe they just saw this on the internet, put their money into it and, you know, just didn't read the code because a lot of people don't, know how to read the code and they just start looking to to profit off these different crypto projects that have these smart contracts so i don't know but i i I tend to think that they're idealistic in a way that um isn't realistic for this world um i don't think that code can ever really substitute in for for courts so the, I think the Bitcoiners and the crypto people tend to be idealistic. Uh, I don't think they believe in objective laws, which I think is a big problem for me personally. Um, I believe in the rule of law. I believe in objective laws. And technically, you have to have a state um, pass and enforce these laws, some independent body. Now, I realize that a lot of our laws are not being enforced equally and the state is somewhat, you know, corrupt in a way. Uh, But the answer to that is not, in my opinion, to just get rid of government and and just to try to use technology to solve this problem using smart contracts or code. It's it's to fix the government. It's to fix what's wrong with maybe the government. Um, Because if you don't have objective rules, if you don't have a state, uh, that's just right, pure anarchy. It's just pure one gang versus another gang. And how is that a better society than even what we have today? I don't think it is. So the Bitcoiners, the crypto people, they tend to be anti-state, anti-authority, anti-government, anti-objective rule of law, anti-objective anything, really. Um, anti-objective idea of value like they think that any cryptocurrency's price is just based off of the whims of the people trading it that day or or the or next month they have no idea what bitcoin price is going to be or ethereum or any other any other cryptocurrency they can never do a proper value analysis on this stuff because they're subjectivists like they just think that anything could be worth anything it's just whatever people think it is on one day for no apparent real reason in the real world. Well, that's not, you know, what somebody objective might say. They would say, well, what is the value of this asset uh, um, based on, you know, its its value to you? What can you do with it? Can you consume it? Like, can you, does it help you make some other product? What, what kind of value does it bring to your real world life? Uh, well, for Bitcoin and crypto, the answer is just nothing. It's just a speculative token that you um, hope to get rich on. That's all that these things really do. I mean, you could maybe say that they help you help you move your fiat dollar wealth around 
perhaps in a way that's outside of banking. But that's a complex, loaded statement that, that depends not only on the protocol itself, it depends on it having a price and it depends on having exchanges that will allow you to convert these tokens into real currency, you know, from one country to another or wherever you're moving it to. Uh, it depends too on the protocols working and you not being sanctioned, right? It depends on the miners actually voluntarily putting your transaction in the mempool and the transaction pool because uh, they don't, it's not something that's required they could totally ignore your transaction in theory but um i got off on <laughs> off topic a little bit here uh so i think i'm going to end this here um yeah i was just thinking you know the bitcoiners are so they tend to be libertarian types or they used to be um but they're not really that principled. And I saw, I saw this interview with, um, with somebody talking about how now, or somebody's writing a book called, you know, Progressives in Bitcoin, where the left is, is saying, oh, yeah, we can be Bitcoiners too. And the Bitcoiners are saying, yeah, Bitcoin's nonpartisan. Isn't this great? Well, I mean, yeah, Bitcoin is a token. It doesn't really stand for any kind of movement necessarily. There might be people that, that, associate Bitcoin with a particular political agenda. But think about that. If the left can be into Bitcoin, then, and the left stands for, you know, big government, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, how, how can Bitcoin stand for anything then? If it can be, if it can be awesome to a lefty, then, you know, who, who based the left, pretty much has opposite values, I'd say, and goals as people on the right, to some extent, at least, at least broadly speaking, um, as far as, you know, the state goes. Now, there's a lot of conservatives that like big government, too, but I'm talking about the conservatives who like limited government. You know, they believe in individual rights. They believe in reduced welfare state. They believe in um, that kind of stuff. And the left you know, wants to spend more money, wants to redistribute wealth, sort of wants socialism in a way, uh, wants to increase regulations, that kind of stuff. Um, opposite goals. So how can Bitcoin be something to for someone on the right, but also somebody on the right, on the left? How can it help achieve, you know, these, these two different people's different goals? Well, I guess, you know, without seeing the interview, maybe I should go watch it, but without really seeing the interview, my guess is that they tend to be pushing this idea that Bitcoin is about fairness, that, that no one can cheat with Bitcoin, that it can help solve poverty, it can help third world countries, um, it can uh, end sort of this government inflation where they're creating money out of thin air. And so in theory, you know, it can be just be more, more fair, more, more, you know, more equality will happen with Bitcoin. Well, that's assuming a lot of things for Bitcoin. It's assuming Bitcoin becomes a medium of exchange. It, it assumes, right, that, that people are going to, that, that it assumes quite a bit. And it also ignores the fact that there's a lot of wealthy Bitcoiners who got into Bitcoin extremely early and stand to make insane, well, have already made insane profits, but stand to make huge profits in the future if Bitcoin actually becomes adopted, right? If they wanted Bitcoin to be this thing that, is about equality and fairness. Why weren't they telling these third world countries and poor people about Bitcoin when it was a hundred dollars? All right, let me take uh, let me take the call here. I think the reason why Bitcoin was appealing to both the left and the right is because it really made it possible for people to bypass the big banks. And you don't have to be a conservative to see the wisdom in that. There are many people on the left who understand the power of the big banks and how they have just gutted our nation and really all the nations of the earth. So I don't see this as a left-right thing. I see this as a freedom tyranny thing. And um, I think Ayn Rand would absolutely be on the side of freedom, recognizing how 
socialistic Marxist slash tyrannical the banks have been. So um, I'm an Ayn Rand aficionado too. So that's why your show caught my eye. But I, I think, you know, the bottom line is people want to be able to freely exchange goods and services without the banks and others standing in their, you know, getting in the middle of their transactions. And that's why Bitcoin was so popular. The problem is there are people who were using the Bitcoin movement as a Ponzi scheme and were fleecing so many innocent people. And then when it collapsed, you know, they just, you know, hid away and pretended it didn't happen. It's been funny to watch them all kind of spinning, deflecting, you know. I would uh, I would just ask one question. Um, I think um, I, I get your point about Bitcoin being outside the banks, but that's only when you um, are holding Bitcoin yourself. And I think so when you buy Bitcoin, you have to send your you know dollars to an exchange. Like that's how most people buy Bitcoin is they send their dollars dollars to some exchange, and then most people have their dollars in their bank account. And so um, I think the banks are still important in that they allow, you know, people to move their, their dollars to maybe an exchange to buy Bitcoin. Um, The Bitcoin people that I talked to over the months, the past few months who are really passionate about it. And some of them are right here on Colin were so excited about a future where the banks did not call all the shots economically. And so they were envisioning a time when it was the banks that would go away and people could just freely exchange without any sort of, it'd basically be a black market, you know, where there's just a free exchange of goods and services and no person from the government could get in the middle of those exchanges. But I don't see that happening for a while, frankly. Yeah, maybe that's true. Um, I think the biggest problem for me with Bitcoin is that it's denominated in dollars. And um, like, so dollars just follow it everywhere. So I view Bitcoin as a technology, a tool to move dollars, sort of like another PayPal or Venmo or something. Um, I think it was being used in that way by some people who were doing it. But there were several different uh, variations of the Bitcoin phenomenon out there working and certain people had better reputations than others. But um, I feel bad for all the people who lost so much money in the whole thing. Yeah. And I, I have a problem with the way it's advertised. I mean, I think that, I think it just is by nature is a Ponzi. And so I don't think it's sustainable because eventually, eventually you run out of people to buy from. Yeah, well, the biggest Ponzi scheme out there in America right now is Social Security. <laughs> That's true, but I don't think you fight that with, like, creating another Ponzi to, to, for people to, you know, lose money on. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for your thoughts. It's all interesting. Oh, yeah, thanks for uh, calling in. Appreciate, um, you know, meeting another fan of uh, these ideas and Ayn Rand and... <laughs> Yeah, her books had such a huge influence on me when I was really young. I wrote, I read The Fountainhead when I was in high school and then Atlas Shrugged when I was in college. And it, it really helped because I was in a situation with my public schooling where we were being taught just pure Marxism in my high school in Detroit. And so Ayn Rand's books came into my life when I needed them. And I've heard oh, wow. that from, from so many other people that it just really helped kind of push back against the indoctrination we had in the 80s. Wow, I, I, I wasn't really taught Marxism in high school, but I wasn't exposed to these ideas until I'd say I graduated from college and started working and started to just, you know, figure out. I, my, my first question was, what is what is money? You know, how can you invest? How can, like, you know, do you, you don't want to work the rest of your life, so how do you put, put your extra savings to work? And what is this thing? What are these dollars? <laughs> That was sort of the the quest I went down. Well, I think the brilliance of Ayn is that she understood what we would term rhinos today, you know, Republicans in name only. 
that there was a group of people who believed the government should help big business and corporations. And they kind of covered themselves as being free market, individualistic, constitutionalistic. But she, rec she recognized they were just as parasitic as the welfare class. And that's why I think her, re her books are really resonating with your generation. I, I would assume you're a lot younger than me. I'm in my 50s. But um, are you like in your 20s? No, I'm in my early 30s. Okay, 30s. Yeah, I just think your generation is really seeing so clearly the crony capitalism and the welfare state tied to the corporations and even corporate takeover of government and governmental institutions. It's, it's more clear today than it ever has been. And Ayn Rand wrote those books 70 years ago, you know, and she just could see it so clearly because she had lived it in Russia with her own family. Yeah, I agree with the whole, you know, Ayn Rand actually called those rhinos even almost worse than the liberals because at least the liberals were honest and the rhinos were basically giving welfare to the corporate business people, you know, you're giving them, you know, handouts and, and tax exemptions. But then they were, you know, saying that we should end welfare for, you know, single moms or, you know, the people, people that are really poor versus while, while at the same time saying that it's okay to give big businesses, you know, welfare. Well, and think about who the biggest villain was, one of the biggest ones in Alice Shrugged. It was the head of that state science institute. And, you know, his three students had just fallen out with him. You sold out to the government. They came in and took over your science. And I think of Anthony Fauci when I think of that character in Ayn Rand, somebody who just has always been a government parasite, made so much money off of it. The government provides him with all this cover and protection. His own wife is in there making major decisions about funding and who do we who do we give these tax dollars to to promote our type of science? You know, just complete, ugly, nasty, toxic government overreach. And and again, I just nailed it in that book. Yeah, I, I wonder if. I wonder how many high schoolers today are reading it. I, I would kind of doubt that it's it's on the list. <laughs> I think in uh, most public schools, but there are institutions that have objectivist classes. Uh, my own daughter was one of the winners in the Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand uh, essay contest they have every year. She got a $50 prize for like third place in the essay contest. It was huge for us because we were all so excited about it. But, you know... Those types of things really help the young people uh, dig in and learn learn the the whole story. You know, they're they're taught Keynesian economics in school. They're taught about the welfare state and and just flat out Marxism right now. But then here's this other wing of intellectual thought, and it's just there for the taking. And I think some of them are really digging in because, man, it's it's just such a time of lies and fraud. And uh, the, the beauty of COVID, and, and I was just talking to my daughter about this the other day, is that it has just kind of brought everything to the surface that was just kind of bubbling under and you could feel it and you can sense you're being played. But then it's like, nope, there it is. All of this corruption, all of this graft. And it's it's wonderful time to just open up your eyes and and realize how the, how we've all been played. Yeah. I think the best thing is, is to let, like, so people, COVID was really great for, for getting a lot of people to homeschool because they were already doing the virtual classes. And then, you know, they saw what they were teaching just by being in the same room, <laughs> apparently. And, yeah. and that encouraged, I guess, more homeschool, homeschooling. And then, you know, with the CRT and Marxist stuff also being taught at these schools, hopefully yeah, that encouraged I'm, people to go I'm homeschool. Have you heard of FAIR? It's the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. No. It's a new organization. We've only been going for about a year. But the whole goal is to reform the institutions. And they are being so effective in their, in their work. People who are being fired and canceled from their jobs in, in, in universities and high schools, they're fighting back and suing those institutions for wrongful termination and it's really powerful how um, they're encouraging individual families, teachers, and students to say, go push back and we will back you up 
with attorneys and support and it's working. I mean, it's quiet. It hasn't been covered much by the mainstream press, but in these individual cases, it's working. These institutions back down. And so it's a really exciting new development too. That's great. I'll have to check that out. That, that reminds me of, um, Edward Blum. He's, 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 uh, has an organization, Students for Fair Admissions. It's very close, but I guess it's different. And he's, uh, you know, he's suing over affirmative action and, um, Harvard and, and UNC. And I looked him up. He's, he's, he's brought several cases to the Supreme Court, different issues. And he's not even really uh, a lawyer himself. He just is a, I guess, a legal strategist where he puts, he finds plaintiffs and he finds lawyers, attorneys who are, are argue the case and puts them together, gets some funding together and just brings these cases. And, and I think that that, along with what you said, you know, I think the battle is in court because it has can, to be. we can complain about these issues all day, but the battle is in court. And I, I was talking about this the other day where the only, the only reason why we're hearing this affirmative action case or the Supreme court, sorry, is going to hear the affirmative action case is because he brought a lawsuit. That's do you know it. him? Do you know him personally? No, I just, no, I don't. I just looked, looked him up and yeah, he's read a hero. articles. I know those cases are coming forward. That was one of the reasons people did not want uh, Jackson Brown on the case, on the court, you know, because she's our affirmative action justice. We don't want her giving her opinion on this case, but it it will be. uh, They are going to let her, let her, uh, uh, I think on this one. (laughs) Yeah, no, good political theater. And it it definitely heightens, heightens the whole um, argument to have that, those optics. And I'm not saying she's a bad person. I'm sure she wanted to be a good judge. I just think it's so sad that she was picked for the color of her skin. And Biden was unapologetic about that. You know, I'm going to find a black justice. And it was like, can we just get past the, you know, just the the outer exterior of people and get into their hearts and minds and and actually look at their record and how they have behaved on the courts, in the courts, you know? I, I just think it's such a crazy time. I, I think that even if they were to overturn affirmative action, I don't think it would be enforced because the executive branches are the enforcers, right? And, you know, if we have in this country the Biden administration or we have a lot of people who want affirmative action to keep going, regardless of what the Supreme Court opinion is, it will keep going. I mean, I guess you, I guess individuals could bring cases forward individual cases where maybe they would get a remedy. But I mean, in practice, if it's not enforced, the laws aren't enforced because the executive branch or most people don't want it enforced. What, what difference does it make if they overturn the opinion? (laughs) Well, the universities have to have their funding cut off by the federal government. And when Trump threatened to do that, it was amazing how many universities started rethinking their diversity policies. And then when Biden got got in, they just, you know, went back to what they were doing. But we really need people at the top in the federal government. I'd love to see the education department just abolished. But we need to have the people who are in charge of the money say, okay, University of Michigan, you're not getting one dollar from us until you fix this. And that plus a few well-timed court cases, I think, I think we can get our schools and universities back. I really believe in education. And I hate to just throw it all out and start over because there is some good there. But so, yeah, and I, I hate to be the, the pessimistic one, but even if you were to overthrow affirmative action, what they're being taught in these schools, you know, in the gate, the, the sort of the gatekeeping of keeping out conservative professors and what's taught. I mean, that's another topic too, that, that would have to be addressed. I mean, I don't know, that would have to happen, I guess, just internally because affirmative action can't fix the people that have already been hired into, you know, professorships or admins necessarily. So it'd be a slow process, I think, to overturn, you know, this bias in these universities. Um, Yeah. Well, there's another group called Heterodox Academy, and this was formed by several very prominent academics, and they are doing the work on that issue, you know, just really. Barry Weiss and... uh, Barry Weiss is part of it. It's uh, Jonathan Chait, I think, was the one who founded it. Uh, they just had one of their first big national conferences out here in Colorado, where I live. And it was sold out. 
people are very interested in their messaging and everybody can recognize the problem, but you know, I'd love to see them get rid of tenure. I think that would be powerful if they got rid of tenured professors and high school teachers and just say, uh, we're going to take a break from this for a little while. See if we can get some diversity going in terms of leadership and who's in charge of the, the uh, hiring. And then I think the other thing that would be powerful is if we could change the laws to make it so that non-educators could work in our public and private schools and universities to say, if we have someone in business or any field who's recognized as a leader and an excellent uh, mechanic or whatever, let's bring them in and have a person who's actually worked in business teaching our young people instead of just these academics. I think that would be really powerful. Yeah, and I guess I I guess tenure is a double edged sword. So you so it's hard to fire somebody, but but right now it's it's the only thing really keeping like Amy Wax, she's a professor in Pennsylvania. It's the only thing really keeping her around um, for now. <laughs> uh, they're trying yeah. to get her fired. Now she has tenure, um, so tenure is working, you know, in her favor. But um, yeah, that happened. That Roland, I think Pryor was his name at Harvard is the same thing. They wanted to fire him, but he was tenured. And so they just put him on a leave. And uh, Fair actually did an excellent video on his story and have been talking about him for months now. And he was just in there questioning their orthodoxies around race and diversity, you know, the DEI and critical race theory curriculums. And just for questioning and, and being kind of belligerent in his tone they're like, we have to get him gone. We just have to get him gone. And it was, it was sad, you know, because he was, he's a great, I think he was an economist. And to have him just shut out of the conversation was just, well, it's just part of where we're at. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, but yeah, even tenure, I guess, I don't know the history of it. I guess it was meant so that people could, could say things and they couldn't get fired. They could research certain things. But, you know, most professors that teach in academia or research, they, they don't even, they don't need, so they're even, they're even silenced, right? Just by the, the mob, just, they don't want to get canceled, right? They don't want to be vilified. Um, so they're actually, if, afra- they're afraid of their students. Yeah. Even if they have tenure, they still won't, you know, they still won't speak their mind. Yeah. Uh, well, so, we got lots of work to do in the coming months and years, but thank you for, you know, having a show and talking about it. These are great issues. Yeah, thanks for uh, calling in. Thank and I'll you. look up that, that organization you mentioned, FAIR. I'll look that yeah. up. You'll find it if you look. Barry, Barry Weiss actually helped start it, so. Okay, all right. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. Uh. I see North is here, and I haven't been able to take your call uh, the last couple times you've been on. So if you want to call in, um, you can. Uh, let's see if he calls in. You can ask a question if, uh, of, you know, a different topic if you want to. Uh, that's not related to Ayn Rand. <laughs> um, if not... If anyone else wants to call in, they're welcome to. Um, If not, uh, I may go ahead and end this here. Okay, Uh, I guess I will end it here. Thanks, everybody, for uh, listening.